and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership podcast. I am delighted to have Lord Richards of Hurstmonteux, who is here, uh, and we're going to be talking about his amazing book. Uh, uh, this is called Taking Command. But I just want to read the introduction, which really captures it nicely. He served in the Far East, Germany and Northern Ireland, before commanding deployments in East Timor and, East, uh, and Sierra Leone, where his intervention in the Civil War without official sanction from London proved decisive in ending years of factional fighting. He later served with NATO and led ISAF forces in Afghanistan. Davis Richards became Commander-in-Chief Land Forces, the British Army, in 2008, and held that role until 2009, when he was appointed the Chief of the General Staff. In 2010, he was appointed as the Chief of the Defence Staff, the professional head of the British Armed Forces, and served in that position until 2013. He was made a life peer in February 2014. David, welcome. It's lovely to have you on the Inspiring Leadership podcast. Well, it's great to be on it. Thank you very much for asking me. Yeah, not at all. And of course, it was your military assistant when I think you were Assistant Chief of General Staff or one of your roles. Uh, uh, and uh, Stuart Tootle, Colonel Stuart Tootle, who uh, talked with uh, great fondness about working for you. And he, he put you forward as one of the inspiring leaders that he worked with. <coughs> Now you've had a great uh, a great career, and and I do recommend to people. I'm going to do a review of the book uh, that they have a read of this. But I was particularly taken as a young schoolboy by going to the Citadel, where Two Nine Commando uh, Royal Artillery had their base, where you did all your some of your training, and um, being asked to abseil as a young man off the the city walls uh, with the waiting tourists below eating ice creams, but. It was a huge thing for you to do right at the beginning of your career after Santos. Tell me, you know, how did it shape your view on life being a commando and the things you learned in that uh, training? Well, um, I think, uh, I don't know if my friends would agree with me, but uh, I think humility was the biggest thing that uh, I was reminded of because I like to think, although I'm a self-confident person, that I also have a good dose of humility, in part, um, you know, taught me by my parents who were uh, of that, you know, they were like that themselves. And I've, I've, I watched the way they, they treated people from all backgrounds and all that sort of thing. And even though my father was quite successful, he was a very clubbable chap. Um, and um, so although successful at school and so on i do think that probably uh, any t any tendency i had to be a bit pleased with myself uh the commando corps soon got rid of it the other dimension i um the other thing i realized uh, or remember most about it and it's linked i suppose is that we were in those days i did the we did the course with the royal marine recruits not their officers but their recruits um and um 
this meant that people from all backgrounds and capabilities, all very physically fit, obviously, but all sort of backgrounds and capabilities in terms of other, um, you know, things other than just physical, um, were on that course. And we were put through the mill. Um, and you learn to rely on people um, who perhaps normally, as a young officer, one would never have got into such, um, you know, such a relationship with. And I remember many of them to this day, and it, we're talking a long, long time ago now. Um, and, uh, you know, I suppose without really thinking about it, they made me realise the interdependence of us all, uh, whatever rank or role we might play. So the commando course and the, the Royal Citadel uh, was, um, yeah, a great learning curve. But I like to think it and i don't know this great debate about genetics and uh, and uh, environmental factors in the way you are shaped but i like to think they were building uh, or it was building on something that i genetically uh, thought of uh, being anyway of course mm. there was the physical side too which toughened me up very quickly and very early on in my career yeah and and, and i noticed of course you have not only the commando dagger but the parachute wings as well was that part of the training that you did at the time you did both courses it was when i was with the commando gunners i i got my my parachute wings um in the in a gap uh, between in from when i was at university every summer i had to go back to the army and uh, i was put forward for the parachute selection course um through p company mm. uh, and uh, yes, I mean, that that was another pretty tough course. I mean, I think at the time, like a lot of people, probably, I had visions of then going into special forces and so on. So this was part of a sort of journey to that way. But I have to say, my eyesight has never been my, my, my great. And uh, a friend of mine in, in 22 SAS, he said, come on, when are you joining us? He said... Um, uh, you know, it doesn't matter about the fact you're blind. Uh, <laughs> I, I said, no, I think it might do. But then those are more contact lenses. Um, I said it might do. And if my contact lenses sort of pop out in the middle of some <laughs> skirmish in the desert, I would be letting people down. So for, for quite rarely for me, I decided I shouldn't pursue that. Not certain by any means. Obviously, I passed the course. But I did... Uh, you know, I thought I'd done well enough in terms of uh, of toughening myself up and proving myself to myself, not to others, by doing the commando course from P Company. Yeah, that's a, a, a huge combination. And I, I myself did the all arms uh, P Company. And again, like you, we were the signals at the time. I was all signals. And we did it with the um, the Royal Engineers and again, all ranks. And it was a good, really good leveler, as you say, as you're being sent back as the officers to go and drag another soldier forward and carry yeah. their, their kit as well as yours. Um, and of course, the corporals always hated the officers and they, they particularly made it harder for us while everybody else was resting. Uh, wonderful. And then it was lovely reading a new book about your father, Jim, who was a, an army officer, too, and your mother, Pam, and and, and their upbringing then Eastbourne College where I saw you sort of uh, in in the cadet ranks there I think were you a junior under officer or someone leading the the, the cadets at, uh, at Eastbourne um your career then went on and uh, you, you had some fabulous different roles uh, commanding uh, commanding your regiment and then on to command your brigade where you and I met and we sat in the turret of our warrior in Osnabrück in the days when you were commanding full brigade and that was a great time for you and a great time for me 
And then uh, at, at some stage, I'm not quite sure where, where it fitted with the, the timeline, but you certainly had this incredible time in Sierra Leone uh, in the Civil War where you were given a, a very constrained mandate, but you, uh, I, I suppose some would say, and in your book, you sort of confessed it, you slightly defied orders and just saw that what was needed on the ground, the man on the ground who saw what was required. What's your view to others when they feel that they they know better than the orders they've been given and they actually probably the right thing to do, even though people won't like it, is to de defy orders? Any, any views? Well, I think... Um... I, you know, I, I, I'm a keen student of military history, like so many of us. And um, I always like to think or liked to think that um, if I was given poor orders or orders that led to, say, unnecessary loss of life or whatever it might be, or you wouldn't achieve the aim, that I would have the moral courage uh, to argue back and hopefully remedy those orders. Um, I remember visiting Verdun in uh, when I was a major or lieutenant colonel, and and coming away thinking, if ever I was in that position, what would I do? Would I have, you know, rather meekly gone along with, uh, in this case, really uh, a political, more than a military requirement? Uh, to do what they did there um and fun enough uh, I, you know as you're looking at things like this leadership um i, I bought a in the richards family we had boiled eggs every sunday it's a tradition um and uh, i bought a uh an egg cup a little wooden egg cup with at in verdun uh with verdun written on it and i'm not an emotional chap but it did leave a real mark on me um and i uh, i when someone said well, why have you bought that egg cup richards you know one of my peers and i said because i want to be reminded every sunday of what stupid generals or uh, generals that lack moral courage might uh, result in mm. and fun enough um you know, I I have repeatedly, I, I literally every Sunday I have my boiled egg still out of the Verdun egg cup because I'm not mainstream in, um, you know, in respect of many things going on today in my thinking. Um, and Sierra Leone, um, I'd visited a couple of times, like two or three times before the year before, because uh, the operation you're referring to took place in 2000. Um, and um, I knew it quite well. And if you just cast your mind back a, a few years, we'd had the Rwanda tragedy and we'd had the um, what happened at Trebinitsa. Mm. And I was asked or ordered to conduct a non-combatant evacuation operation. Uh, and because I knew the country quite well, two things came out of it. One, I knew that the RUF rebels, which were our primary enemy, were really a bunch of drug crazed bullies. And I felt that, you know, a, a, um, a, a sort of robust response would probably, um, you know, still let ardor a bit and could be more successful still. Um, and the other thing was that I did not want to be associated with uh, a Srebrenica or Rwanda. And I I just sensed, I brought those two together, that I could actually do more than I'd been ordered by some margin. But then I had the problem of how do I do it? Because I I, I'm not so stupid that I could sort of, uh, you know, disobey orders openly. Um, so I contrived to... Um, 
use similar tactics to that which would be required for a, a, a non-combatant evacuation operation, but that which had a, another purpose, which was to delay and then stop the RUF rebels. And when I was asked, why the hell are your troops deployed so far forward or whatever, I just made sort of think, I said things like, uh, well, I've got to do that in order to leave the, the, the airport plenty of room to, you know, for planes to get in or I couldn't let them get too near Freetown. And I could tell people didn't really believe me, but they couldn't quite handle it. Um, so I got away with it. And I have to say, bless uh, uh, now Field Marshal Charles Guthrie, because he came out uh, to visit, um, in part potentially to sack me. Uh, because there was a lot of criticism back in England by, from the politicians as well as some of my rivals, uh, brigadier or major general sort of level. And uh, he said, no, Richard's is doing a fine job, leave him to it. So uh, I, I think a bit of luck and having uh, ultimately, in his case, a really good uh, visionary uh, and also, I like to think, morally brave chap in, that, in the chief of defence staff of the time. I think was very helpful. But I give you a bit of background. And we were very lucky, Jonathan. You know, not a single soldier was lost. Um, we pushed the RUF back, got the UN going, and we were all we were back home within six weeks. It was uh, a huge success, and and thank goodness. And I'm just reading uh, David Petraeus, who we had on this series, uh, his book with uh, Lord Roberts, uh, Conflict, which is very interesting. But so many of the accounts are of wars that haven't worked out, that haven't gone well. Uh, and the fact that Sierra Leone was a bit like uh, Malaya uh, and uh, the Amman, a success, uh, Aden rather, um, it, it's great to be able to to be involved in an operation which was boundaried and could be seen as a success. Apparently, is it that one that they might be making to film? Who knows? Maybe one day. <laughs> well, no, you, I, I, you've been well briefed. I, I uh, who knows? I thought it had died a death, um, but um, it, it is still going. Ten, well, actually, thirteen years on from when it was first mooted, um, and it has just sort of been kicked back into quite quite uh, I think healthy life. So you never know. And of course, uh, the the question always is, who's going to play me? Um, well, I'll keep that to myself unless you've got an idea or two. I've lost you. The thing that struck me in the book um, is the number of fascinating people that you met. I mean, uh, I'm going to uh, at times just get you to talk about each of them, little thumbnail sketch. Of either, but Field Marshal Charles Guthrie, I got to meet when I was ADC to... The, field, the late Field Marshal Inge. And, and I just wondered what your experience was of those two generals, what their sort of their best qualities were that you saw that, that sticks with you to this day for both of them. I think their humanity, uh, they both had. I mean, they're quite, quite different people. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, um, they they were good friends and, and fellow officers. Um, but, um, you know, Field Marshal Inge, was fearsome, as you know, uh, but uh, at, beneath that, um, he was also intensely human. Um, and when someone who's really fearsome suddenly smiles at you uh, with a big grin, uh, you know, you somehow love him even more for that. Um, uh, but he's also very caring. He, uh, he always wrote uh, a note, uh, often in his own hand, um, you know, to say thank you for quite minor things that were probably our job. 
Now, Charles Guthrie, I can't remember him ever writing anything to say thank you, uh, but his demeanour uh, was such uh, that, you know, he left you always sort of on a high, uh, very cheerful, very cheeky in many respects, not sort of cheeky to, to people like me, but, you know, you could see he was irreverent. Mm -hmm. uh, and and hugely capable uh, and and had the a character that very effortlessly to my observation seemed to get on with people from all backgrounds mm. um and uh, i mean i have never heard a, a a bad word said about him actually other than he's intensely lazy <laughs> um i don't know if that's true or not because i mean you know good good people um make things make it look as if they're lazy often when they're not and i think my memory of me worked pretty hard uh, but but you know if he was lazy then he he was even more capable uh so i, I think yeah both great great men but quite different mm. uh, but both mm. left left people like you and me um feeling better for being in their presence yeah, no, very true. And I, and I think of uh, when I sat around or brought things into the army board meeting and he was he was there, um, very, very skilled in that ability to to look that things were terribly easy. A bit like Sebastian Roberts, who was the MA1, General Sebastian Roberts, who, again, loved to be rather languid and be as efficient as possible. But I think it was it was uh, General Rommel who talked about the 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 four different categories of leaders, the the stupid and hardworking, which you should shoot because they're taking miles in the wrong direction. The 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 stupid and lazy and then the the, the bright and hardworking and then the bright and lazy. And he said, take the bright and lazy ones and promote them to the highest ranks because I get the job done and then have time for sport and family and recreation. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Very astute. And there aren't many of them. No, no. Very true. Very true. And and you had a fascinating time. One of one of your jobs was brigade major in in Berlin in the time when the British had a, a, a presence there and it was a divided city. Uh, and um, you had to look after Rudolf Hess. And not only that, but you then got to be a bodyguard for a, a Hollywood starlet, Joan Collins, in 1988. Tell us about both of those two. That was a great story. Uh, right. Well, it was still, as far as we were concerned, at the height of the Cold War, although little did we know when I arrived there in late 86 to be the man who was really running the day-to-day -day operations of the brigade, including into East Berlin. Um, and so, you know, I, without realising it, I was quite a, a sort of powerful guy at my level. Um, there was a brigadier above me who did sort of senior high-level stuff. And then there was a, a major general who ran the British sector, as it was called. So it was straight out of the Cold War, well, actually post-Second World War uh, arrangements. Um, yeah, well, so uh, Spandau Prison lay within the British sector of Berlin, um, and the only remaining prisoner was Rudolf Hess. Uh, while he was in the prison, he was responsible, responsible, uh, the, he was a responsibility, sorry, of the four powers, and they rotated every month uh, America, Russia, uh, France, and Britain. Um, on a, uh, I can't remember when it was, uh, it was in when the Americans were in charge, uh, he'd um, 
was taken out uh, to um, a makeshift um, sort of, I don't know, what do you call it, a sort of sun sunroom made out of a, uh, of a porter cabin, really, uh, to take it, get a bit of sun. Um, and uh, he strangled himself with a cable that was being put, electricity cable that was being uh, installed in the, in the porter cabin. Um, uh, so I uh, saw him then as his uh, corpse was brought uh, to the British Military Hospital because as soon as he was outside the prison, we became responsible for his security. In particular, I became responsible for his security. And I can tell you it was definitely the Rudolph S that you've all seen in movies. Um, and I saw him on three other occasions um, when he was alive because when the Russians were on, uh, on stag, um, he didn't like being in there if he could get away because they took away his television. Um, and I, I talked to him as he was wheeled in uh, a couple of times into the hospital. So that was my background with Rudolf Hess. Um, and, um, you know, fascinating part of my life it was. And we took it very seriously, actually. Um, Joan Collins, because Berlin was one of those places that, you know, that was, you, you hardly could believe that you were there. Uh, it was something out of a novel. Uh, and yet we took our uh, our military role very seriously, too. Um, as a sort of, we, we were right out, if you like, in the middle of the group of Soviet forces Germany, if they should have been silly enough to attack West Germany. So they took us quite seriously as well, um, in the belief we could uh, do much more than we actually were able to. Uh, but anyway, quickly, Joan Collins, um, she came to present uh, the prizes or, or one set of prizes in the Berlin Film Festival, which is a quite a big uh, do. And uh, someone came to me, um, Major Andy Harris, who's a friend of mine, said, um, I've been asked if we can provide uh, bodyguards to Joan Collins when she comes. Um, uh, I said, well, can't we get a sort of proper bodyguard company? He said, well, we look, but there aren't any. Don't forget them to the Cold War. There weren't any in Berlin then. So I said, OK, I think we could do it. And I said, furthermore, I'll be one of them. So uh, very amateurishly, something out of the Keystone Cops, we guarded Joan Collins for 24 hours. And a lot of fun it was. Wow, what a great story. And, of course, you've got a lovely picture of her signed by her, given to you. I think she um, she was very uh, grateful for you looking <laughs> after her. A handsome a handsome army officer looking after a starlet. That was fantastic. Um, the other thing which struck me in the book was you had a huge amount of experience in, in Afghanistan and, and wrote your own diary, um, but also you met some amazing people when you were in that key role uh, in Afghanistan. In particular, you were having these frequent uh, conversations, discussions, guidance with uh, President Karzai. Uh, what was what was he like and what was it like writing your diary and what are you going to do with the diary? Well, let me just sit, set the scene slightly because uh, why was I meeting these people, Very mainly politicians? It was because I was what's known in the trade, as you all know, as, as the, a theatre commander. So I was working pretty much at the strategic level often, certainly at the political level, um, and uh, without doubt at something between the tactical and the high strategic, which, as you know, we call the operational level. So uh, my role spanned everything from should we, um, I don't know, attack a Taliban stronghold in Kandahar uh, through to meeting 
presidents and prime ministers and, and, and lesser mortals like Donald Rumsfeld. Um, and I met the full gamut because, of course, um, America had great interest in what we, the British uh, Allied Rapid Reaction Corps headquarters, was doing. They had said to uh, NATO, we want to focus on Iraq back in 2004. Uh, we'd like to hand over Afghanistan to NATO. And Tony Blair, who's another one I got to know pretty well, uh, he said, well, we'll take it on using our uh, ARC headquarters. And little did I know as that conversation was taking place that I was already slated to be the Comarch, um, you know, a year later. Um, so um, they would come through and took great interest in what we're doing because, of course, both America from, from one perspective, but also all those European and other NATO nations from another, because they'd taken it on, wanted to know how things were and what I what made me tick. And uh, it's quite, it's not new, but it's very outside um, British operational experience. Um, in fact, since I was told, I, 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 I don't know if this is true, but it sort of makes sense that I was the first British uh, commander of at the operational uh, and at theatre level uh, since World War II. Now, yeah. that's certainly... Dave, a, David, a Petraeus, David Petraeus mentioned that. And, and, you know, he mentioned you by name in his book, yeah. Conflict. Oh, does he? Okay, I've got it. I must, I must look at it. I mean, of course, I was the only non-American to command mm -hmm. Afghanistan mm -hmm. at that level. Um, and Dave Petraeus is a, is a very good friend. Um, I, I, you know, so that's why you do it. it I mean, yeah. I remember the Italian um, ambassador who very kindly is, um, did a farewell. I would hardly call it a party, but some sort of reception when I had to leave. He said sometimes... We're baffled, David. Are you um, a talented politician masquerading as a as a general, or a talented general masquerading as a politician? Uh -huh. And I sort of laughed beautifully. But it sort of give give you a good feel for what you have to do. I'd say only twenty five percent of my time was actually occupied with uh, lower tactical level issues and uh, outstanding people from many nationalities. Broadly, I could give my intent to. As you'll remember, uh, I didn't try to tell them how to do things. I told them what was required. And I might tweak the tiller occasionally, but give or take, I then got on with what I saw as my primary role. Yeah. and, and But what fascinating people you met. I mean, it's interesting, uh, Andrew Roberts and uh, David Petraeus w ha had quite a sort of dig at Donald Rumsfeld for for the strategies that he took in in what went on, and particularly in Iraq, where they sort of missed the post the war, what they're going to do then, and it'll be fine, don't worry about it. Um, but as you look back on Iraq and Afghanistan, do you think we could have done anything better to try and save it from the the results that they've now ended up with, the situation they're now in? Is could we have handled it differently? Um, it's an excellent question. I'm asked regularly. Uh, I went to Iraq a number of times, but I didn't serve there properly. Um, I so I don't, uh, you know, I'm slightly reluctant to second guess people who I respect hugely uh, and their view. But on Afghanistan, I have no doubt that we didn't have to leave when we did, and that um, I got into some trouble in 2010. I think I was still, I'd been appointed CDS, but I was still CGS. Um, 
And uh, I said in an interview on the BBC, um, when asked how long did I think we would be involved in Afghanistan, uh, I said probably for another 20 to 30 years. I got some criticism because they didn't uh, uh, analyze what I'd said, which was not in the combat role, but we they will need our support for another 20 to 30 years. And, you know, as was the case in, in Northern Ireland, as you know, um, and and still is in, in some respects. So um, we didn't have to leave in the way we did, which was a strategic uh, disaster, really. Mm. Uh, and But when you go on military operations or go to war, and you, you know, was Afghanistan uh, a war? Well, we could talk about that. But um, as far as the soldiers were concerned, at the lower tactical level, it most certainly was a war. Um, and I think in many respects we didn't treat it as we should have done, which was to put full-bloodedly uh, our effort into it, resources, uh, uh, military, mass, etc., etc. Uh, and as a result, we uh, weren't there long enough and we never really gained the traction we should have done. But the lesson for that is if, you, if you're going to go to war, you either do it uh, properly and full-bloodedly or don't do it at all. Mm. And I think you can see that playing out in today's wars. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, talking of today's wars, it, it's um, you, you're now in the House of Lords and uh, hearing many of the discussions that are going on. Um, There's obviously front of mind right now is the, the war uh, with Israel mm. in Gaza at the moment. And then uh, I, I just wondered... Did you see that developing that way uh, or were you as surprised as many were? Uh, and and how do you see them militarily? What's the end state going to be and how are they how are they going to move on to the next stage? In your opinion, and it's just your opinion. I just <laughs> yeah, yeah. OK, I can see this being on the front page of the Times and I'm not careful. Uh, YouTube and all. Well, uh, look, uh, I think um there's a tragedy here in two senses. One is the loss of life, uh, most notably on the 7th of October, um, a, 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 a dreadful atrocity committed by Hamas uh, on the Israelis that were killed and taken hostage. But then, and I'm quite clear that what the Israelis have done since uh, breaks my understanding of what is proportionately acceptable in terms of inflicting casualties on civilian populations, which is why the vast majority of the world are saying the same thing. Um, uh, and I think even though uh, he might be criticised for not reining them in enough, I think it's quite clear that that's what President Biden uh, also believes. Um and, and this, you'll remember from your own uh, being taught at Santos onwards, proportionality is very important. But I'm quite clear that we could not and would not do what the Israelis uh, have been doing uh, in the last four to five weeks. Mm. Um, uh, it, 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 it breaks, um, I think, morally, but also legally. It, it's extremely questionable. Now, there had to be a military reaction. I'm quite clear on that. What would have been the alternative? Uh, well, it probably would have been much more surgical, but it could have risked Israeli military lives much more. 
and the reason they have chosen uh, to go down the route they have in large part is because they were not prepared to risk their lives uh, the soldiers, their soldiers' lives, more than was absolutely necessary. So they've used a lot of ordnance to do what we, in similar circumstances, might have had to risk our soldiers' lives doing, more a more surgical approach. But that all said, you asked me whether I'd anticipated it. Not in the detail, no, but in, in another sense, yes. Until uh, a political uh, settlement, call it for want of a better term, a two-state solution, but a solution that gives the Palestinian people the respect and dignity and a homeland that is uh, so important to achieve that, um, then there will will be generations of further Hamas terrorists who will do what Hamas and many, many other Palestinians um, will, you know, instinctively feel they have no option but to do. So I always thought it was it's a perennial war, given the nature of the beast and and what is at stake. Um, will they achieve, achieve just quickly achieve their tactical objectives? I don't think so. I think it's almost impossible to eradicate Hamas in the way uh, that the Israelis uh, are hoping to. Uh, they might neutralize them for a while, but even if they uh, uh, don't remain in Gaza, they will form up and come back in another way. Um, and uh, the, the I suppose the other thing that I'd had to say it linked to it is that the Israelis have uh, squandered that most precious uh, commodity in in war, but particular in this day and age, which is they've lost the strategic messaging. So if you like, even if they win tactically, which I think is a big if, but they might, I think they're losing strategically. And it was Sun Tzu, and you'll remember this probably, who famously and so rightly said that um, strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. But tactics without strategy is merely the noise before defeat. And you can apply that in any walk of life, but most certainly in, in our walk of life. Uh, and that's what I find is pretty tragic because the Israeli people deserved a better long-term response to what Hamas did so dreadfully uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely uh, find that uh, spot on. And it's interesting that the uh, the ghost at the, at the feast is Iran. And I've just been listening to Empire, which is a very good podcast series. And they've just been covering, um, they did a lot on Russia and the lead up to the Ukraine war, but they've been doing a lot on Persia and Iran and its history and it, and its how great an empire it was in Darius and various people like that and leading up to Marathon. It's fascinating. And then to the modern age. But now we have Iran, which many of my friends who either got injured, um, such as um, uh, a number of friends I met in Help for Heroes when I was cycling in in uh, north, uh, northern France around the battlefields raising money for Help for Heroes. But they said, you know, the ordinance that blew me up was supplied by the Revolutionary Guard of Iran and, you know, put across the border into Afghanistan or into, into Iraq. And, and then here we have Hezbollah with 100,000 troops trained by Iran, Hamas with 30 to 40,000 people down in um, Houthis and, you know, sending rockets. 
all in the background, sort of the, this tension between Iran, Saudi Arabia, and all that goes on. What do we do about Iran? And, you know, it's, mm. it's the one that no one wants to really talk about, but it's all there in the background. And it's linked with Russia, of course, who's delighted that this is going on because it takes the heat off uh, Ukraine. Well, certainly on your latter point, there's no doubt about that. Um, what I would say, I mean, it's a hugely complex issue. Uh, you know that just, well, not better than me. So I can only give you a few wave tops. But first of all, uh, I'm pretty certain Iran did not, if you like, order the Hamas attack. Um, the Israeli security and intelligence apparatus should be ashamed of their failure on the 7th of July. Clearly, at the tactical level, it was rotten. But strategic level, linked to American effort, um, I believe that if the Iranians were causing this to happen, we would have found out. And the Israelis are, are as good as said they would. Um, so um, why did, uh, you know, first of all, you should dismiss, if you like, tactical control of Hamas's activity in respect to the 7th of October. Why do I think that is likely beyond there's no evidence of it, uh, depending which rotten podcast or website you go on, because there's lots of conspiracy theories. But I mean, I'm getting this from pretty good authority, put it that way, um, because actually Iran was getting quite close to a deal with Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's got uh, relations now with Bahrain and the UAE. Um it sort of was winning to some degree the propaganda war with the USA. And the USA themselves were sort of soft peddling on Iran. We are. We have diplomatic relations with them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yes, um, they have, uh, particularly IRGC, I one sense is a bit out of control, uh, uh, has been fermenting a lot of this. But in respect of what's happening in Gaza, I think there's pretty compelling evidence that just they, they didn't have their fingerprints directly on it. Why not, though, uh, accept the strategic case for uh, dealing in whatever way uh, one might with Iran? Well, because we don't and shouldn't want to go to war with any country unless we really, really got to. And our quote, and this is vital, to our vital national interests are at stake. And I would not, I would, it would, some convincing for me to say right now we have to go to war as part of a Western American led coalition uh, with Iran. Um, uh, I would like to find a way, and there was uh, a, a thing called the JKPOA, uh, which you'll remember goes back a number of years now, a deal being done with Iran about nuclear weapons. Um, you know, and there was cynics, but uh, broadly there was a consensus amongst people I sort of respected that this was probably a good thing. We ought to give it um, a, a fair, fair, you know, win. Um, uh, that's now sort of um, off the table, as far as I can tell. Um, but I, you know, it, well, as I must have two other things. Uh, Hezbollah, interestingly, had not use those 100,000. Uh, and I think Iran does not want a regional war. 
um, and therefore we shouldn't precipitate it. I mean, you ask what should we do in the long term? Well, there can be only one right way, and that's to play a long, a long game um, and induce them through a proper combination of carrot and stick back into the international community. Because the alternative is one day we'll have war and it could be a nuclear war and the first uh, victims of that as strong as they are could well be israel yeah. uh, which we don't want no no i mean as you say there's so many layers within this but but then it does take us back to that other link uh an area you know so much about with russia which you've studied all your life from being a young officer in the cold war like i was and it, imagining them uh, rumbling across the border. I, I was at a very interesting uh, meeting as ADC with Field Marshal Inge, the head of the West German Army, the head of the East German police, and the head of the East German Army. Um, and it was just as the wall had just come down. It was post that, about a, a few weeks later. And, and this fascinating conversation between both sides where the East Germans said, we knew you were going to invade us. And Peter Inge went, no, we weren't. So no, no, you were. We just knew you were coming across any minute. So we had our tanks, even though our barracks were in terrible state, we turned our tanks over every every 30 minutes because we knew you were coming. No, no, we weren't. We thought you were coming. And so this, this, this impression they had of each other, and then the fascinating one was the head of the East German uh, police. He said, Honecker told me to shoot the West Germans on the wall. And he said, there I was. I had my Dakar. I had my family uh, in lovely supermarkets, special supermarkets for Communist Party members. My life was sorted. And I, I had a decision to make, a moral decision. Do I shoot these innocent Western people on the wall or do I disobey Honecker and watch the whole thing unravel? And he said, I chose to disobey him. And no one knows much about this, but that was a decision that the whole thing unraveled. But he made the right decision, but it cost him his whole career, his life his family, everything that went with it. But it's interesting, the, the unsung heroes in history. Yeah. Decisions they I, had to make. Very interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well I, I wasn't actually in Berlin when the, fall, the wall actually came down, but I can tell you, I left in January of that year. We had no inkling, uh, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, maybe we were beginning to see signs, but they weren't picked up. Uh, and certainly if they were, they weren't fed to us at my lowly level. But I think on Russia, um, it's a good point you make uh, through your tale there. Um, you know, uh, NATO expansion, um, and in particular, the idea that uh, Ukraine should become part of NATO. Now, to us, that's no threat. You know, NATO, we're not an aggressive organisation, uh, rightly so, but not through Russian eyes. Um, and so, uh, you know, a succession of diplomatic gaffes, uh, po political sort of over-assurance in the 90s and then 2000s, notably uh, President Bush uh, inviting uh, um, Georgia and Ukraine openly to join NATO and say, you will join NATO. To a Russian, that uh, was threatening. Um, and in that respect the great uh, henry kissinger who we heard uh, today has just died i think was absolutely right 
Um, but we are where we are today in Ukraine. I think, uh, and I, you're right, I do have some knowledge, maybe more than the average, about Russia, because I was the Soviet Army DS at Cambly, at the Army Staff College, uh, for two years. Uh, and I also studied Russian, Russian history at university. And I remember being interviewed in March last year, um, and being um, seen by some people as a bit of a peacenik or surrender monkey in respect to Russia, when I said that I think we're already underestimating their resilience and robustness. Um, uh, and I drew that from history. You think about 26 million Russians died in World War II, massively more than uh, Americans and British and French combined, for example. Um, and they have a habit of learning their lessons and coming back. Um, and I always thought that for Ukraine, unless she was given all the kit and more that uh, she began to ask for as early as March, April last year, that there was no way that they could regain that territory. And sadly, in many respects, I've been proved right. The deduction for me, going back to the point I made earlier, is you only go to war if your vital national interests are at stake. Um, you, you, I, I know people who, who would say that Ukraine's interests are our vital national interests. Uh, Cold-bloodedly, I don't agree with that. But even more importantly, and this is the key fact, if you go to war, you must do it to win and win quickly. That means you have to have what Colin Powell called over, overwhelming uh, power. Um, weight of, of military muscle. Uh, the blooming Ukrainians much to our shame, are going to war at the moment and dying in large quantities. Uh, there's huge numbers of people without arms and legs, for example, um, many more than I think we're being told, um, who uh, are fighting for a cause which I fear cannot be realised, i.e. the regaining of uh, the four oblasts in Crimea. There's a moral issue here for all of us, should we encourage Ukraine to go on doing this when we're almost certain, unless we are suddenly going to give them everything they need, and I see no sign of it, Gaza's further um, taking our eyes off it, that unless you are, you really should find an alternative because it's immoral in the extreme. And I go back to my, my Verdun uh, analogy. Uh, it's not right that we should do this to people. Uh, and I fear we're now in that game and we need to reorder it or give them the kit they need. Yeah, I, I think it's a very realistic appraisal, sadly. And and people feel that if Donald Trump, and I don't know whether in your travels you ever got the chance to meet the Donald, but if, if he gets back in, heaven help us, which he might do, um, he's probably likely to go more pro-Russian than pro-Ukrainian and probably withdraw the support for Ukraine. And then they're really stuffed. I don't know what your thought is if that happened. OK, well, first of all, I never met him, but I did appear accidentally because they, his uh, election team distorted something I said in an interview. So I have got a picture that was on a website of me and him together. But to answer your question, which I... I I, I, I send friends and they find Riley very amusing. But um, and I'm not getting into the politics of it because whoever uh, the American people vote in, we need um, to, to work with them. 
um, and in one area, and this is why, by the way, it was in his website. Uh, I said he, he you know, he, he's saying certain things that perhaps we don't all approve of, but on one area he's right, which is uh, we must spend more on our own defence. We in Europe, uh, and that's why he, he sort of adopted me in some way for about a nanosecond. Um, yeah, I, I feel that um, um, you know that Russia. Um, what, what was the nub of your question, Jonathan? I've, well, I've I was on. wondering. Yes, OK. No, it's fascinating. I, I was wondering if someone like Donald Trump does get in, that his more pro-Russian stance than Ukrainian might mean that the Ukrainians finally lose that huge amount of material and financial support for infrastructure, yeah. electricity, all the rest that's going on in the background that people don't know about from America, because he'll say enough. We're not giving any more. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, of course, uh, they are. They have got a huge amount, probably between Europe and America, something like two hundred billion dollars uh, worth of s support. Remember, though, a vast amount of that is going into the uh, the the the, the uh, pay packets and others of defence companies, mainly in America too. So it, it's not as if we're giving them $200 billion. Um, and the time it's taking to get that kit to the Ukrainians is, is ridiculous. But actually, when you're not on a war footing, probably entirely inevitable. Um, so it's why I question the strategy always was flawed, potentially. But I think uh, more that um, Donald Trump, if he... Uh, uh, does get back into power and he uh, takes the, the rug from under the Ukrainian effort, it won't be so much uh, or just because he wants um, the Russians to win in some sense, although I think he's quite a big state man. He likes the idea of, you know, China, Russia, America running the world, give or take. Um, uh, and he, he's not the only one. To some degree, Henry Kissinger was a bit like that. He called it the sort of the school of realpolitik. Uh, and there's something to be said for it, but I don't think we can go down that rabbit warren. But I, I think it'll be because he wants the war to stop. And uh, in that respect, uh, he's right, because if we dig in for a long drawn out conflict in Ukraine, and there are many people who are now saying that's what we've got to do, is it's inevitable. I mean, just analyze what that means. We're talking maybe years of a destabilizing war uh, in Europe, uh, certainly on the uh, on the very edges of Europe, uh, that could go badly wrong. Uh, either side could make mistakes. Russia could get adventurous. Ukraine uh, could get adventurous in in attempts to catalyze a, a, a new uh, situation. So it's not instinctively, from my perspective, something that we should encourage. What I if we aren't going to give them the kit they need, and I I think we're almost at the point where we're not going to because physically don't forget the russians also have a vote they're building up their stocks and learning all sorts of lessons and still got a massive big, big population to draw on um but but probably what will happen is that president Zelensky has got a real problem because he he has said we will only stop when we have regained the oblast and crimea uh, but assuming he is the statesman we all hope, if he sees that that is inevitably not going to happen, that he does some sort of deal trading uh, land for security, I think what will then happen is that um, uh, we will 
um, gives some very strong security guarantees to the 80% of Ukraine that remains free. Um, and uh, and will turn the Ukrainian military into a defensive uh, organization rather than offensive, which, um, you know, being, as we all know, the defense is, is broadly easier and will give them a lot of kit so that it becomes almost impossible. And I my model really here is South Korea, North Korea. Uh, uh, Ukraine, free Ukraine becomes a very uh, prosperous, successful country within the EU, uh, hopefully. Uh, in the meanwhile, uh, uh, Russia has been defeated strategically because we've got to remember and keep reminding people that President Putin failed in his attempts to retake uh, the country as a whole. He's actually got uh, what he already had, which we didn't go to war with uh, uh, him over in 2014, and a bit more. So he hasn't really succeeded. He will be able to tell his people he's succeeded, and he needs to be able to do a bit of that. You know, I live in the real world. But actually, strategically, he's failed. And NATO, in the meanwhile, uh, has got bigger and stronger. Um, I mean, that's that's not a great success on his part. And I think we then play a long game. And hopefully, uh, as is perhaps going to be the case in Korea, um, you know, in 30, 40 years time, uh, the good people of Russia uh, and the Ukrainians uh, come together again in some deal. So that that's how I would see it. But, you know, I'm the biggest peacenik on this land, on this in this uh, globe, having seen a bit of, you know, what yeah. was about. Yeah, well, particularly uh, books like The Bloodlands about the 20 million people who were lost in that area between Russia and Germany, not even in the wars, just between the wars. Yeah. Um, we should learn from it. And the, just the resilience that the Russians have just to take punishment after punishment after punishment and not give up. And the depth of their defenses are just, you know, like round Kursk, just massively yeah. deep and no one can get through them. Um, we're coming almost to the end, tragically, and we're going to end in a moment with your top tip, uh, your leadership top tip. Before we do, you've met some fascinating people. I want to touch on your little thumbnail sketch of, of the, the nicest um, characteristics of a couple of politicians you met and then uh, the royal family, uh, two members of the royal family. Uh, firstly, um, Tony Blair and David Cameron. Uh, obviously, David Cameron's in the news a lot, and so is Tony Blair with his foundation. What what, what do you see as the, the best leadership qualities of both of those can Everybody can be critical, but what do you see as the best leadership qualities of those two politicians? Ah, well, they're both very personable, mm -hmm. uh, natural. Um, you know, Tony Blair, the first time I met him, um i uh you know he made me think that i was very special um uh, okay i i was a lieutenant general by then because no, i never met him during sierra leone we we sort of i got messages from him but i never met him um so the first time i met him was uh you know wrapped around afghanistan but more importantly i remember i took my age i was i used to, unlike american generals after teaser like this i travel pretty light so i used to go everywhere just with my adc um and we arrived at number 10 um and uh simon came in with me he's a chap called simon briggs and uh um someone came out of the prime minister's office and uh he said a lady to me and then he looked at simon and and uh 
what 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 is what's he going to do? I said, well, can he come in with me? There's no reason. There's only two of us. It'd be a great treat to meet the prime minister. And Tony Blair came out and heard me say that and said, of course he can. And and he treated him very as a very yeah. important person. And I think you know that at a personal level is really important. The other thing I'd say about Tony Blair was, uh, you know, I think he thought strategically and was uh, and still is something of a statesman. And I give a pretty bad talk on with a statecraft, with a statesman. There aren't many around, certainly in the Western world. And David Cameron, uh, I think, is a rather similar character. He, 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 you, you, you know, he made you feel wanted and important and at least, uh, you know, on the surface, took your view uh, into account. <laughs> I teased him quite a lot. And he sort of teased me back. I think he called me a maverick. Uh, but if you if you employ a maverick, you expect to be ticked off again or something. He said. <laughs> but I on him, and I hope I now perhaps he's having another go at this. I said uh, in my book, I think uh, he has all the makings of a statesman, but didn't he hadn't yet developed into one. And I think although it sounds rather critical it's not really meant to be i think you know you you do grow into being a statesman it's not automatic um and one of the failings of our system is that uh, they don't train themselves they don't put themselves through a, a staff college yeah. you know in, in being a statesman so those that's what i say about the two of them yeah no that's great and then uh, lovely picture in your book of uh, you with the queen uh love your your fondest memories of her and then finally of our new king and the connection with the military which you're still very closely tied with well yes i mean of course there is a rule um that you don't really talk about conversations you've had with the queen or with the monarch uh but um i mean she's no longer with us sadly and i i have only the fondest memories of her um and i was asked when she died and uh, did appear in a couple of sort of minor media events um but i think her sense of humor uh has to be my abiding memory and a very sharp sense of humor i mean um i remember uh a, 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 a no a king another king an arab king telling her with me there that i was um i was advising him and she looked at me and then looked at the king and said to him so rather inquisitive, inquisitively she said is that wise <laughs> um, um, and uh, you know we laughed so much um, and that's just one example and then the photo in the book uh, the RAF uh, flew, flew over the wrong tower at Windsor Castle when we were doing the Jubilee event. Um, and uh, they, we then went down to Windsor Great Park where the RAF were doing another uh, fly pass. And, uh, uh, and she turned to me and said, I do hope they go over the right place this time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, things like that. So she's lovely. Yeah. Uh, I miss her dreadfully, but we have uh, in King Charles a, a wonderful successor. Um, he's um, extremely conscientious. Uh, I worked with him on a number of occasions, not least because I was, had the great honour to be Colonel Commandant Brigadier Gurkhas, and he is a very senior part of the brigade and much loved. 
Um, so I think, aren't we lucky? Um, he, you could not ask for a more conscientious or, or well-intentional or, I think, dare I say it, um, but more intelligent uh, monarch that wants to help us subtly and sensibly in, in a direction which I think we all broadly agree with. So I think we're terribly lucky. Yeah, fantastic. So finally, and this is a clip in its own right, if you'd kindly introduce yourself, because this will be a standalone piece, uh, what you're doing now and what you were doing before in your career, uh, and then leave us with your practical top leadership tip for people in the 125 countries around the world that listen to this podcast. Well, no pressure. I've forgotten this bit, uh, Jonathan. Um, so, uh, well, I'm General David Richards. Um, I had the great privilege to serve in the British Army for 42 years and ended up as the chief of, of uh, or the, the, the formerly the head of the three armed forces uh, in Britain. Is that something you that enough? That's um, good. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, what's my great tip? I think never think you're too good uh, to uh, ask advice and take advice from whoever uh, is appropriate, whether, uh, you know, lowly people or great uh, leaders, you know, statesmen or whatever. Uh, so humility, I think, is vital in leadership and moral courage equally so uh knowing when to say no um that's not right uh unless abc happens um and i think the other thing is being enjoying the company of everyone that you might come across and be thankful for it uh, too many people to my observation um sort of don't really seem to enjoy being in the company of others or a bit obsessed with themselves. Just put your arm around people occasionally and say something nice and you will never cease to be surprised how they will repay that loyalty and interest. Uh, and I think that's what I most remember. Fantastic. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure and a great honour to have you uh, on the Inspiring Leadership podcast. And thank you very much for your insights. No, thank you, Jonathan. Well done, you. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye.